Welcome everyone to the future of space, your weekly dose of deep space thinking. I'm Daniel Fox. Today on the podcast is the Overview Effect author, space philosopher, Frank White. Frank, welcome to the future of space. How are you? I'm doing well, Daniel. It's great to be here. Thanks. Listen, I want to start with two questions I always ask for each guest. And the first one, even though you've never been to space, you've been looking up to space for many years. Give me three words that describe space for you. The three words that I would think of are everything, nothing, and home. Love it. Home. Or our current home, future home, or just the well, home in its general? I'd like to explain that because it comes from an astronaut, Katie Coleman. I did not actually interview her for this, but I was struck by the quote. Uh, she said, the Earth is our ship, space is our home. And it is both our present home and our future home in that we're already in space on our spaceship Earth and we will be moving out into outer space and it will become a different kind of home. However, she's not the first astronaut who's made a statement like that. Many astronauts have talked about how they felt so comfortable out there they felt it was home, they wanted to go back. And I have to admit, it's a bit of a mystery why they say that. There is something about humans, and I believe it may well be embedded in our DNA, that even though it's a harsh and dangerous environment, there's a part of us that knows that's where we ought to be. That, you know, I've, other astronauts have compare, compared it to birth. And of course, when you're in your mother's womb, it's comfortable, it's easy, it's completely designed for you. And when you're born, it's traumatic, it's scary. Somebody slaps you on, you know what, and there are lights. And as we all know, life, <laughs> life on Earth is not that easy. And there's a lot of people who talk about returning to the womb. And somehow I think humanity as a species knows We've got to do this, and that's why it feels comfortable, even though it shouldn't. I guess some of the uh, the parallel that can be made with you know when we're in the ocean, or some of the people who've been in the water, in this sense of almost we came from there, or we've we've lived there for so long. There's all like you never leave that connection, and if we're made of of star dust these molecules have been traveling and been recycled over several billions of years i guess inherently at the core of those molecules is still that connection to the stars i think i think you've uh, you've characterized it correctly and i agree with you for those who don't really get it about outer space they don't know why we we like you and you and i why we're so fascinated. Think about why is it that people want to go to the beach? Why are people so drawn to the ocean? 
there's something about humans that draws them there. It's very similar if you think about it, Daniel, because you can't go into the ocean for a long period of time. Certainly you cannot go underwater without special equipment. It is potentially a dangerous environment. And yet people go there not, not just in ships or in other ways, but they want to be close to, to the water. And the, as you say, there's something potentially about our past evolution that makes us want to go back there. And maybe there's something about our future evolution that makes us want to go out. I think we always have to think about evolution though, because it's, it's really central, excuse me. It's really central no to it, our life. I mean, yeah. if we know anything, if you're a scientist and if you're a Buddhist, you might think those two are very far apart, but Buddhism teaches that nothing is permanent. Scientists know that evolution is just natural and um, it's, you can't really think about life without evolution and change. I wrote in my, um, in my book, Fill the Wild, that there's a, this entry about water or connection to water. And I hypothesize if that's why we build skyscrapers so that from the top we can be reminded of where we come from, from the ocean, from the water. So ultimately, yeah. the only reason why we build up is that we can, yeah. we can see the ocean from the city. Yeah, I think it's true. And I read somewhere and I only say this uh, as a lay person, I'm not a, a scientist of uh, any kind in this field that dolphins, whales, cetaceans are descended from land, land animals. Well, sea animals who became land animals and then said, this is not for us and went back. Uh, and, and again, why, why would that happen? Because in fact, being a mammal in the water is pretty hard uh, life. Um, my wife and I took a dolphin tour in Florida and the the tour guide said, did you know that dolphins can only put half their brain asleep? And we said, no. And he said, well, they're mammals. They have to think about rising up and breathing. Yeah. If they went to sleep, they drown just like you would. And you think, wow, you know, that <laughs> from an evolutionary point of view, if it's true, they traded a fairly straightforward life on land for going back to the water. Um, yeah. Now you, the second question is actually the premise of your book, but the second question is what do you think going to space is going to teach us yeah. with some of the insights that stepping into the outer space mm -hmm. and looking back at the earth, um, will give us and you wrote a book and the overview effect is all about that. So do you want to kind of, I know that you're known for the overview effect, but for the audience, can you tell a little bit more about that? Sure. The overview effect is a term that came to mind for me when I was flying cross country and looking out at the earth and I was thinking about life off the planet always seeing the earth in the sky 
and I had a an epiphany, I think I would call it, that people who had that experience would understand fully that the Earth is a planet, it's a whole system, everything is interconnected, everything is interrelated, and this is a understanding that surface dwellers are trying to get to. We we know this intellectually, we we feel it, and yet we don't experience it, and my question couldn't be answered about people of the future who are going to live there permanently. So I began to interview astronauts as proxies. And what I began to learn from them is that seeing the Earth in this way and then seeing the universe as the context of the Earth was not an ordinary experience. It was a bit of a shock. They learned a lot. <laughs> And when we say learn, we do have to think about it in the sense that they say to me when I interview them over and over again, I knew there were no borders or boundaries on the planet, but it's still amazing to see it that way, not to see the divisions that we take so seriously. And one of the constant refrains is no matter how different that person next to you is from you, they're really similar to you. Being human is so com is such a common denominator. And you feel it, I suppose, I haven't done it yet, but you feel it so strongly when you're looking down or looking back, I guess it is, from orbit or from the moon. Um, these divisions that are so much a part of our brain that we don't even have to think about it, it's just there for us, become uh, unimportant. The other thing that's important that we learn is how extraordinary our spaceship Earth is. The, you know, it's interesting, when I first started interviewing astronauts, I focused so much on their experience of the Earth that I didn't think much about their experience of the universe. Astronauts see the Earth in a way that you and I haven't seen it yet. Um, I emphasize yet, since I think we'll get there. But um, I hope so. <laughs> I know that's our goal. Um, they see it in a way that we haven't seen it, and the vast majority of people haven't had that that experience. But then. After I was maybe working on the third edition of the book, I realized they also see the cosmos in a way that no one has ever seen it. And they see the stars in a way that's new and different. And they begin to understand as they look out how unique the planet we live on is. William Shatner, who is not a professional astronaut, I think communicated that in very dramatic language after he went on Blue Origin. He maybe overstated it, but he said, out there, out there, it's death. And here below, it's light and light. And, but uh, it, it is interesting in terms of what will we learn 
perhaps we will learn something that will be a survival lesson. And you know this better than most because of your, your interest in nature. The fact that we're here is really pretty extraordinary. And it's pretty fragile. The earth may not be that fragile, but our life, our civilization, our species is. So we'll learn that, I think. Do you, um, you talk in your book about how giving context to earth and planet the, the being in space, obviously the astronaut looking back and seeing for the first time planet earth in context of the solar, uh, the solar system that is just not this world, but it's this world in connection with the blackness and then the other moons and how it would not exist if it wasn't for all of the other planets around the Jupiter and Saturn and, and even the moon and trying to express that you write this passage about how a fish who would step out of the water and try to explain to the other fish behind what it is to be outside yeah. the lives like it would be so hard and maybe there's not even a language to express to communicate that yeah. and the the astronaut are not necessarily guilty of not being good communicators but they're more kind of victim of experiencing something that so far we don't have the capacity to process and understand yeah, the explorer fish metaphor has become pretty popular with readers of the book because they can see it, they get it. Uh, the the there and as far as we know, again from a evolutionary point of view, there was an explorer fish, or maybe there were ten of them. We don't know, but there were these fish who maybe accidentally, or maybe they were being chased by predators. We don't know. They flopped up onto land and kept going back until. They could live on land and obviously the idea of going back and trying to explain land to fish who really didn't even fully understand water uh, you can imagine them saying oh that's really interesting uh, but don't we have enough problems here in the ocean and that's what we see every day uh, that's what we see. I even wrote about that the other day, like th that same kind of reaction when we came down from the trees. Yeah. Now, I, I can only imagine the, the tribe or the group of individuals who were living in the up in the trees and then the first couple of of explorers yeah. who decided to go and venture down into an environment where the predators were of a total different scale and they were not really physically adapted for that. I mean, they could move their way around, but they were not like where we are today. And so the, the ones who were left not behind, but above would tell these individuals like, don't you think that we have enough problems? Why are you risking the integrity of the group? Why are you going to risk something that is just so like kind of almost useless? Yeah. And yet that is how we evolve. Yeah. new information, we get new information, we adapt to new, uh, to new circumstances, and, and we do evolve. One thing I'd like to say too, because this is probably the right time to say it, I've been doing a lot of consideration of 
the question of is it perhaps uh, not just a nice thing to do for some, I don't know, several thousand adventurers to go live on Mars or whatever um, you might imagine, but is it perhaps the answer to preserving our species and our planet for very large numbers of people to migrate in the sense that if you look at some of the studies that have been done, like limits to growth, which came out in the 1970s and was quite powerful, uh, and some of the other work that's being done, there's a pretty good case to be made that the planet as it's now constituted is going to have a very hard time uh, supporting our advanced technological civilization, our high levels of population, etc. What if the solution to many of the problems on Earth is in fact large-scale space migration? And is that not something we should at least look at, not as an escape, but as an answer? Um, that's a reasonable Absolutely. question. Absolutely. I mean, you got, I mean, you're, you're into my realm at, at, at this point. This is, this is na the way nature has always worked. Yeah. The, whether it's, you know, if you look at wolves, you know, at one point the, the family becomes too big that some of the males or the, the, the group will fraction and then they, you know, they have to go and find another territory because now there's not enough resources for that, for that, that group of wolves. But it's, it's not just wolves, it's for every single species. Yeah. And even when the Europeans left, or whether it was indigenous who found themselves, you know, who were in North America before, they were not all living into one unique area. They spread all over the, the, the continent. Why? Because obviously they, had, they were competing on the resources and they had to figure out how to, you know, to claim their own, their own space. Yeah. And when the Europeans left, Europe, it was to save Europe. Europe was in total shamble in terms of resources, mm -hmm. and some a lot of people, the settlers, were willing to give up everything that they had on the promise of starting something new. Mm -hmm. And it's just that for us, it's hard to understand that now the planet has become kind of to its capacity of what we can do with it, mm -hmm. and we have to look into the uh, the stars of the yellow space. But this is exactly what. I wrote how we are going to space, not because we want to, because nature wants to go. Mm -hmm. It's nature's next journey. It's been looking for this time for 4.6 billion years, ever since the beginning of a single cell, it's been pushing and, and evolving and adapting so that it could spread. Right. And if the, the, what, what kind of makes the human species um, successful it's our capacity to share information through stories or through generations. And if you look at the planet Earth, it's knowledge, it's life. And if you look at the universe, which you do in your book, the Cosma Hypothesis, the universe is a, almost kind of a living organism. And it itself also wants life to connect. It wants the information to connect. Right. So we have this duty, this responsibility to export that knowledge and, and take it to new places, right. which is, you want to tell more a little bit about the Cosma hypothesis, right. which is your, your second book. 
Yeah, you know, that grew out of the work I was doing on the overview effect. Uh, and it's interesting, the evolution of that book as opposed to the overview effect in the sense that I mentioned in the published book that I have a manuscript that I was writing in 1988 called The Cosmo Hypothesis. Uh, the overview effect came out in 1987. And at that time, I had a plan to write 10 books about space exploration. And at that time, I actually did write one other one that was on the list, the SETI factor. That's about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And uh, shameless plug, the second edition of that is coming out, is out now. Uh, uh, the first edition was published in 1990, and it's been updated and revised. But in any event, the Cosmo Hypothesis was aimed at answering the question you've just been talking about, which is, what is the purpose of human space exploration? And it was based on an insight that whenever we talked about purpose back in those days, 87, 88, we talked about the benefit to humanity. Oh, Apollo, they had to make better computers, so we got computers out of it. Or uh, people always joke about non-stick frying pans and things like that. And, and NASA has published a list of spinoffs every year. And that's certainly true. We get those spinoffs. But it hit me like a ton of bricks that it's all about us. And what about the universe or what about the earth or what about the solar system? What is the purpose of human exploration that benefits the environment we're in? And that is what the Cosmo Hypothesis is about. And the hypothesis for which I have scant evidence, honestly, but the hypothesis is close to what you were talking about, which is we bring life and self-awareness and intelligence outward and the universe becomes more alive, more intelligent, more self-aware. And uh, you asked me once before, why do I call the universe Cosma? And it, it's just because I wanted it to be more feminine, nurturing in nature, but also I wanted people to think of it as a living thing, as a living information system actually. And so when I talk about purpose, I'm not being a theologian. Uh, I'm really talking again, environmentally, every species fills a niche and does something for the environment. And so I could be wrong. My hypothesis could be wrong, but the, the question is something everybody should ask. You know, what, what are we bringing to the adventure. And it may seem like a stretch to ask why are we important to the universe, but for a long time we we just thought that think, seeing ourselves as a, a partner with the earth seemed, it, it seemed out of place, you know, well, what are you talking about? And yet now we do, I think, increasingly see ourselves interconnected with the planet in a way that we didn't 100 years ago or 200 years ago. So 
I believe it's possible for human consciousness to get to that point. Um, and that's why I was exploring it. And for data, if you will, I went back to all my astronaut interviews. I pulled out what they said about the stars, about the universe, not about the Earth, but about the cosmos. So the overview effect, and because you were talking about obviously the the connection to these other planets, the overview effect is looking back at the Earth and realizing where we come from. The the fact that there are no boundaries from that point of view, the connection of between the oceans and the land, and everything is under this little tiny planet, all our evolution. But also you talk about the Copernicus perspective, which is looking out and understanding that same level of connection, but throughout these even bigger planets. And the, I was, I was uh, reading this morning, not reading, I was watching something about the moon. Obviously the moon is in orbit because it's falling fast around the planet. Yeah. But also the sun is falling, not the sun, the planet Earth is falling around the sun and the sun itself is falling on a much bigger scale. So all these elements everywhere are falling and yet this, this magical celestial dance as we're all turning with each other and kind of moving forward into, I guess, a, you know, these uncharted waters, you know, spatial waters. Yeah. But the connection, obviously, there's a lot of theories that say that life came to be on Earth because of the moon. The moon was creating this uh, push and pull of the water, and then some of the some of the fish find themselves stuck, you know, in in, right. in little uh, tide pools. So you have the moon that is helping on on the um, on the life. You have Jupiter, this massive planet that pulls a lot of the universe, the the, the solar system together. And again, we have theories that without Jupiter, maybe there would not be life mm -hmm. on this planet. So all that we have on Earth is connected to all these seemingly un disconnected elements in the solar system, and that's. I guess that's the point with the Copernicus perspective, correct? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm sure as a writer, you know what I mean when I say, I don't know what I know till I write about it. And uh, yes. so I start with an idea, of course, you have to have some idea of where you're going. You could never write a book, but I'm always surprised, and this is true in fiction and nonfiction. I'm always surprised at where the writing goes. It hopefully will always go uh, along unforeseen paths. In other words, exploration, as we're talking about. And one of the insights that occurred as I was writing the first edition of the book was, okay, there's the overview effect. You've established that what happens in orbit or even going to the moon. But what's really profound here is space exploration, that is moving further and further from the Earth, is a constant change in consciousness. And after the overview effect is the Copernican perspective. The reason I mentioned Copernican was he was the first European to really state that we're part of a solar system. 
And we are. And what you just talked about is an interesting area of, of research. And that is, what is the impact of Jupiter on planet Earth? Most people don't ask that question. There are people studying Jupiter, and they know a lot about Jupiter, but they may or may not talk about its impact on Earth. There are people who study the moon, and they do see there's an Earth-Moon system. But what is the meaning of the solar system in terms of who we are, where we are, and the consciousness we have? And so people ask me, well, what about the people on Mars? Will they experience the overview effect? And that's a really good question, but it, the, the answer may be surprising. And that is no, not really, not in the same way, because the overview effect, the way it's been defined, is seeing the Earth as a whole system. You're seeing the continents, you're seeing the oceans, you're not seeing borders and boundaries. People living on Mars aren't going to see that. They're going to see a point of light in the sky. Uh, they will need a telescope to see detail. So as we've talked about the overview effect, no, I would say they will see the Earth as part of the solar system. It will be more the Copernican point of view. And, you know, we've all, I, I hope all of us have heard the beautiful commentary by Carl Sagan about that view of the Earth taken from far out in, in the distant reaches of the solar system. And he called it a pale blue dot. Um, yeah. When I look at that picture, it looks like a molecule. Uh, doesn't look like... <laughs> like a star, yeah, yeah like a planet. Yeah. Um, well, this is exciting because it means... What, what are we going to get out of exploration? Well, changes in awareness. And this goes back to your first question. What will we learn? What will we learn? Part of what's exciting about exploration and consciousness is that you don't know. And um, I had a great interview with Don Pettit, who's an astronaut. Even today, he's the oldest active astronaut. And... Uh, He's in his 60s, and he's still qualified to fly, and he wants to. And we were talking about, you know, people say, okay, what's, what's the result of exploration? Uh, on February 29th, what's the output? And, and you say, we don't know. You don't know. No, we don't know. And this is a lesson we have to keep learning. I mean, whether it's medical research or exploring outer space or meditation, whatever form of exploring you do, or even writing, you don't know the answer beforehand. So that's a good thing. And yet somehow it makes us very uncomfortable not to know what people living on Mars will learn, uh, you know? And that's why we write science fiction is we want to think about it uh, in some sort of um, non-objective way. I mean, we don't have to prove this is how they'll think. We're imagining it. It will be interesting, I mean, finding ourselves on a new planet and making the difference between science fiction, all these years of science fiction and the reality of it. Yeah. There's always a romantic idea of what life is and then there's the reality of it. Yeah. And, you know, 
when people left, again, making a parallel one, when people left Europe, great, and, you know, the promise of new, a new beginning, a, a, a travel on the sea, you know, and, but then the reality of the mundane, the, the feeding yourself, the establishing your shelter, the, the, the routine of making sure that everything is in place and that the oxygen supply is, you know, taken care of. Those are the reality of the, right. the, the future in the same way that back in the days when we kind of drew a picture of the future, there were spaceships, but we never thought about all the satellites all like around the earth giving all the technology mm -hmm. and now you know we have to deal with the reality yeah. you're talking earlier about will the overview effect be experienced on the planet mars and the reality is no in the same way that when you fly on the plane you start from the from the ground you get up and then when you travel you do have that perspective but the minute that you land back where you at your destination, then you're back on the ground, and then obviously that perspective is behind you. Right. And it will be the same, you know, the same thing as when we get to Mars. The the departure, the travel, experiencing that connection through space and through that solar system will give us the opportunity to experience something that was just changed the way that we see life. But once we get onto the planet, then it's going to go back to great. Now we need to survive. We need to figure out. We don't have the luxury of really thinking too much we need to establish ourselves and make sure that we live until tomorrow yeah and that's that's part of um, you know that's part of the other reality that I really learned about from talking to the astronauts they do retain that perspective but they do also quickly adjust back to life on the surface and um, that's an important thing to realize. That is to say, when you're in orbit, you see the unity and oneness of the Earth. And in your mind, you know that it's chaotic and diverse once you go back. And then, indeed, when you go back, you very quickly uh, come back to that very, very different uh, experience. And both are true. You know, the unity is there, the diversity is there, and that's hard for us to hold in our minds two very apparently different uh, realities, and yet they're the same reality. Different perspective, Correct. same reality. Now, I want to change a little bit of the, the, the discussion about something that you and I, we talked. In fact, I wrote a little bit about this. You, I think you might be reading more about it, yeah. about how last year, 2021, was truly a tipping yeah. year in our relationship with space, even though the technology and some of the groundbreaking achievements were way back in the 60s and then there was a space shuttle and it came down but the elements of what happened last year really tipped the reality and now it will what is ahead of us is just going to be a golden era of of uh, space innovations and space travel and space discoveries yeah you're right. <clears throat> that was an amazing year. It really was. And of course, it was also the second year of the pandemic. So how extraordinary that all of it happened at that time. But 
I've been waiting for that for a long time, ever since I wrote the first edition of the book, because it was so clear from talking to professional astronauts that it would be a remarkable thing if people like you and I could have this experience, either by going into orbit or on a suborbital hop, or if advanced virtual reality could come into being. And really, both things began to happen almost simultaneously. And we won't ever go back. You know, we, we will never return to, to the time before that in the sense that it is now, I think, the momentum is there to keep this going. And the, the commentary on what happened last year, in my mind, was often misguided because it was easy to talk about billionaires having a space race. Very easy metaphor, something people can relate to. However, to me, it was more like Sputnik in the sense that I was 13, I think, when Sputnik flew. And, you know, the Russians, the Soviets had been saying they were going to put up a satellite and nobody believed them. <laughs> nobody believed it. And then when it happened, it was really a shock. And the reaction was fear. It wasn't humanity has gone into outer space. It was the, the Soviet Union, the Russians have gone into outer space, at least in America. Correct. And so the reaction was, was very um, much of its time. And yet what was really happening was humanity had begun this great adventure that we're talking about. So similarly, the reaction was um, <clears throat> Sir Richard Branson is a billionaire and, you know, Elon Musk is a billionaire and uh, on and on and on. Jeff Bezos is a billionaire. Well, of course, that was important because they were able to fund the activity. Yeah. But from my point of view, what I saw was the overview effect is now an experience that many, many, many people can have. And if I'm right, it will change society dramatically for the better. Absolutely. That's what I saw. Absolutely. But, you know, just to close on this point, we see what we know. And so I spent 35 years thinking about this moment, 2021, so I was ready to see it in a certain way. The people writing about the billionaire space race had not been doing that. They had been on a different path. And so they saw what their experience, background and training brought them to see. And so it's part of our job really is to help people see this new space age in a different way. Which you've been doing, you've been doing amazingly well. You've created an overview roundtable a year plus ago. You've seen it evolve from a concentrated tribe of space geek nerds to a, a complex community of people from all different backgrounds. And even you and I, you know, you being in the space for 35 years, me being a solo wilderness expedition and in the more nature aspect. And here we are, you know, looking talking about about moving into outer space so the right. obviously the dialogue has evolved and spread and it's changing there's a lot there's a lot of people coming to the table and bring their own perspective yeah. 
Uh, Frank, I want to be I want to be mindful of your time. Yeah, we've been together for forty five minutes. I want to close before we tell the audience where to find you. I want to um, end on your involvement with uh, a nonprofit that is really dear to your heart, Space for Humanity, which is over the last year, also because of twenty twenty one and because of all the attention, has grown to new level has. Uh, received some funding from uh, Bezos or from uh, McKinsey Scott. I can't remember. Well, Branson and Bezos, actually, yeah, I'd say. Okay. Giving them resources and outlets that were just dreamed of. So can you kind of um, end with what is space for humanity quickly and what is um, in the pipeline for the, the organization? Yeah, so I'm on the board of advisors of Space for Humanity, and I think it fits nicely, not only as a single organization, but as a sort of a predictor of the future. Once we understand that uh, this perspective can change consciousness, it then becomes possible to use the technology to create the perspective in order to change consciousness. And that's a big break from what space agencies had done. Astronauts who flew on NASA space flights didn't go to experience the overview effect. They went to do other things. And when they came back, they weren't expected to do anything in particular for the society. Well, Space for Humanity is a model where you get chosen to go based on what you'll do when you come back. And part of the obligation is we will pay for your trip to experience the overview effect. And then you're obligated to come back and do something that makes the world a better place on Earth. So it's a tool. And as Dylan Taylor says, and he is the founder of Space for Humanity, you know, going back to your question, three words to describe space, Dylan says, uh, space is a place for transformation. Uh, it's a tool of transformation. And that is something that humanity has that we've never had before, which is an experience that we can shape that can transform individuals and society. What an amazing process that is. And, you know, you and I are Absolutely. lucky enough to live when it's happening. What a, yes. what a trip. Yes. <laughs> what a trip. So I understand that right now people can apply to become an astronaut until February 15, correct? I think that's correct. What an amazing opportunity that, uh, that the foundation um, will give to people. I mean, we're, we're, we're there. This is happening. This is not just whether it's going to be with um, Blue Origin or, I mean, all these new players that are getting into the um the not going to call it the race but the reality of it but absolutely amazing now frank cosmo hypothesis is available the overview effects fourth whoops there we go fourth edition yeah um anything else in that is coming up for you well don't forget that actually there is an overview trilogy there's also the new Camelot, uh, and all of these are available uh, on Multiverse Publishing on their website. And yeah, that's right. You're new. You're a new publisher. Yeah, my new publisher. 
And there is a huge new interest in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I do believe uh, the SETI factor, which has been revised and is coming out with uh, new, uh, at least one new interview and several new ideas in it, I think that's going to be far more interesting to people now than it was back in 1990 when I wrote it. So there's always a new book being written. We can't wait. Okay. I will put the link to your website in the comments and also the links to your books. Um, people can find you also on LinkedIn. Um, are you on Instagram? Yeah, Try I'm, on, to yeah, I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Excellent. Are you on TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on, on TikTok? TikTok, but I'm going to, I'm an explorer, so I'm going to try TikTok. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I'm going to leave that exploration to others. I find okay. TikTok to be. To be all right. Frank, thank you so very much for your time and thank for your you, insight. Bro. Thank you for giving the world a way to express and to interpret the experience um, of going to space. I'm pretty sure that the astronauts were busy with experiments um, on their own and you were able to, to, to give them a structure to express their, their capture of their emotions. So on yeah. behalf of the world, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Um, we will see you on the road this year hopefully, yep. um, as we start to travel. And I look forward to catching up in person. So Frank, thank, thank you. Here. Thank you, Daniel. Bye-bye.